You're listening to the Silicon Valley Podcast. This week on the Silicon Valley Podcast, we sit down with Joe Weilu, who is the CEO and founder of Total Expert. Joe is fiercely committed to building Total Expert into a world-class technology company through incredible people and a relentless focus on innovation and getting better every single day. He has dedicated his life to staying ahead of trends and creating incredible value for his customers. He has expertise in digital transformation and financial services, SaaS, fintech, sales and marketing, leadership and strategy, and much more. On today's episode, we talk about how do you land your first major customer? Why is it important to define what is customer success and what questions should be asked? How many customers does one need to have to know they have found product market fit for what they are making and And how long is a company around before a distinct business culture has been formed? And how can a company go about utilizing their customers' data and much more? Now, remember, when I'm not doing this podcast, I'm a mid-market investment banker focused on mergers, acquisition, growth capital. So connect with me if you're interested in these services. But for right now, let's start this week's episode of the Silicon Valley Podcast. Enjoy. Welcome to the Silicon Valley Podcast with your host, Sean Flynn, who interviews famous entrepreneurs, venture capitalists, and leaders in tech. Learn their secrets and see tomorrow's world today. All right, I'm super excited about this week's episode of the Silicon Valley Podcast. I'm sitting down here with Joe. Joe, your your career path into technology is not the most typical, which is well, our audience is going to find out about it in a second, but I just got one question to start off. You know, you hear about all these things in technology or in Silicon Valley being built, but they don't really apply to the real world. Why do you think so many people here, the, these engineers that are millions or billions in funding, just completely miss the mark? That's a great question. And by, by the way, thanks for having me. I think often uh, if you think about technologists and engineers, one of the problems that I've seen is people fall in love with what their version of innovation is or what their version of a solution is. And not necessarily, they don't necessarily fall in love with solving the customer's problem or their target customer's problem. And so that's, I think, you know, broadly speaking, that's probably the best way to describe why, why there is a miss a lot of times in what's built. All right. Now, I know I gave you that question off the bat, but let's even go back further. Joe, tell us about your career, a little bit about your journey, about you know, your evolution up until this point? I started, uh, I started my career primarily in the real estate industry. I was an agent, built a team, did some real estate investing. And about really about 10 years ago, started the process of saying, hey, there's a whole bunch of things that are built for the real estate lending. I was on the real estate side, but the problem that I saw was the technology that was built essentially for the housing industry, which impacted both the mortgage side, which is our primary start in the business, was serving the lending community. And a lot of the tech that was built just was missing the mark. And to 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 your first question, really missed the mark on the actual people that are working in the business every day and the problems that they needed solved. I just continued to see that. And so very naively, I went from being a real estate agent thinking, well, I can actually build something that's better than than what I was seeing. And it was a very expensive education, I would say, the first couple of years. And so, you know, about 10 years started iterating on different ideas and 
it took multiple, multiple years of learning basically what not to do and actually how hard it is to really build a SaaS product that both unlocked value for the end customer, was scalable, and um, had a had a big opportunity, right? So it just took a lot of time of essentially failing, really, the first couple of years. And so that was kind of my, you know, my transition is started very naively thinking, hey, I want to build something for the business that I was in, right? So my initial product solved a problem around uh, allowing lenders in the real estate community to essentially work together to acquire and serve a customer. And so if you think about if you think about a consumer that goes out and buys a home, they don't think about looking for a mortgage or looking for a real estate agent necessarily. They think about I, I want the dream of home ownership. So the initial product was really around allowing them to collaborate together and addressing some of the inefficiencies, the inefficiencies and compliance challenges. And then essentially spent really about the first three years making every mistake possible. And then was fortunate to to start figuring a few things out and realized in about late 2014, so about two and a half years in, really realized that I needed to figure out how to raise some money if I wanted to actually build something meaningful. So that was kind of the initial part. So let's go back to to that. So a couple years of expensive failing. Can you talk a little bit about some of the lessons that you might have learned while failing? And even before that, I mean, still real estate to CEO of a software company, there's some I would guess some skills that are are kind of either missing or you know that are really strong in one area that didn't go over or I guess I'm saying is you didn't have yeah. any engineering background. How'd you go I from one to the other? Yeah. yeah. So I, I would say I was missing a lot of skills. And you know, it was really obvious once I got going that there was so many things that I didn't understand, right? I didn't understand technical architecture. I didn't understand... Um, I mean, things is, that might seem simple to technical people. I, I didn't know what DevOps was. I didn't know... Uh, I essentially didn't know really anything about building software whatsoever. All I knew was there is a problem and there's super smart people called engineers that can build things to solve those problems. I want to do that. I mean, that seems super naive. But what I did do was commit to essentially consuming everything I could find on how to build a successful software company, consuming and reading and immersing myself in essentially every piece of content around the industry and really learning just everything possible through my own experiences and then paying attention to what other companies were doing. I started following... I remember starting to follow Jason Lemkin pretty early on as he was kind of starting Saster. Got some great content there and then just picked up the phone and would call software CEOs and see if I could get 15 minutes with them to ask them questions and learned a tremendous amount that way as well. How do you think? Because how do I say it? Most people wouldn't just reach out and make those cold calls to the CEOs. How did yeah. how did your real estate skills, sales skills, I guess, correlate to being able to actually build this company from the very beginning? Yeah. So I guess the thing that uh, maybe helped me that was relative in my real estate world that translated was the willingness to deal with rejection a lot. <laughs> okay. So I was very comfortable having uncomfortable conversations, right? I was very comfortable reaching out to people. And, and I shouldn't say very comfortable, but I was just used to it. And I just felt that 
I, I got to a point where I said, okay, the first sort of year I was experimenting and saying, all right, can I build something technology wise? And once I got into it far enough, I'm like, failure is not an option. I'm going to commit 110%, whatever it takes to be successful. And then I would just back into that and say, all right, what are all my gaps and things that I don't know? I didn't know how to raise money. I didn't know how to essentially figure out product market fit. I didn't even know what that phrase meant. right? I didn't understand go to market or what that meant. So I just started learning as much as possible. And I mean, I'm still learning and, and have had obviously the privilege now through many of our investors to get connected to other great entrepreneurs, some of the best SaaS companies out there. Um, you know, met CEO places like Zoom, you know, Eric and Peter Gassner from Viva and those types of guys. You get the chance to interact with those guys through some of our investors. Emergence uh, was our Series B investor, and they expose you to these amazing leaders and entrepreneurs, and you just start developing your, your knowledge and improving. How valuable is it? Because it sounds like at the very beginning, it was kind of tough to have the conversations that you really wanted. But then as the company grew, it almost seems like, okay, now all these doors are opening up. And when I have questions, there's an expert that can give me an answer right there. Yeah. I mean, I'll give you a little bit of context. So when I first decided, I first realized that I needed to raise money. I would start, developed a pitch deck and it was terrible. It really was terrible. And I think everybody kind of says that mine was really terrible. And I went to the local angel investor networks and I had a lot of confidence that our core idea had ton of potential. But I learned very quickly that uh, that doesn't really matter. Ideas don't really matter in a lot of ways. Unless you're a second-time founder, then I think an idea can get you funding. But I, I was told no from literally every angel investor thing that I went to. I, went, I remember one particular day to where uh, I went down to the University of Minnesota. There's a, a, an organization called Go for Angels. And I just got brutal feedback. Number one, they're like, essentially, the feedback was, you have no business starting a software company. <laughs> we're, not, we're not interested in writing you a check. I'm, I'm summarizing it. But I went home that night. It was really kind of a demoralizing day because I'm like, okay, here's these people that are obviously have invested in a lot of software companies and and they're telling me basically I suck. Uh, my idea sucks and I have essentially no business doing this. And so that was kind of a tough day. But I, I just went back to what I knew I wanted my outcome to be, which was build a successful company and that I was not going to tolerate anything less than success. Right. So I said, okay, fine, I'm going to go. I'm going to Take what I what I learned from that experience. I'm going to iterate on the idea. I'm going to go back and meet with customers, and I'm going to get some more traction somehow. And after those very unsuccessful opportunities of raising capital, I believe that the only way to really get funded was to show progress and revenue from actual customers that were getting value. So I just became absolutely obsessive about finding a handful of customers that we could deliver value for with our very primitive initial solution. And I mean, this would involve literally getting on flights, going out to places like Chicago and our, our target market was lending and literally meeting with individual loan officers at individual branches and getting their feedback and what they were looking for. And then just taking that product feedback loop and improving, go back out, say, hey, I listened, we listened to what you said. How about this? And I did that literally for probably 
eight to 10 months after those really initial horrible meetings with initial investors, got enough traction and then said, okay, now I can go back and meet with some investors, some different investors. And since we had some some traction and that was that was sort of the process of getting from basically zero to something was that that time frame. Joe, quick question for how many founders out there do you think initially go out to investors, get feedback, never take that advice and just give up versus yourself who went out there, got a ton of feedback, it sounds like, acted on the feedback, went out for 10, 11 months, and then came back to where you needed to get the attention of these, these angels. Yeah. So I guess I don't know the answer to that exactly. But what I would tell you is my guess is a lot of people that start companies have no idea how hard it is and how much essentially what I consider just pain you have to be willing to go through in order to get something that is, you know, even I would say base level, kind of that base level initial MVP that is a fundable business, that's an investable business. It is incredibly difficult to get to a point where you have an investable business. And so I think people a lot of times underestimate the difficulty. They see the these overnight successes, quote unquote, that were five or 10 years in the making. And a lot of the successful companies that break through, from my experience, they were many of those scenarios had, you know, varying degrees of that kind of story to where they had a lot of failures and then they just kept plowing forward. And then finally broke through. So I, I think you know they're more the, the successful ones. I think largely have some variation of that story in some way, shape, or form. And then I'm sure there's a ton that say, you know, this is way too hard. <laughs> that is brutal. I want to ask more about that very beginning with how you came across your first engineers. But staying on the pain topic just for a moment. Yeah. As the company grows, the pain and the troubles you felt at the beginning, did they strengthen you for the obstacles you have to face now or the obstacles facing now as this company has been so successful that you've built? Are, are the challenges that you met at the very beginning now seem, seem minuscule as if they were nothing? That's a really good question. So what I, I would say is there is pain and discomfort literally at every stage, nonstop and consistently. <laughs> and I'm sure there's a lot of founders that would agree with me, but it's varying degrees and levels of intensity of discomfort along the entire journey. right? And I've been very, very fortunate to have some great mentors, some great people that we've been able to attract, some great investors that have helped with that. But the the challenges going from, I would say, in terms of level level of hard, I was at a point early on where I was putting payroll on my credit cards, right? And I was essentially liquidating all my personal money. That was a different level of hard than say the problems that we solve today a lot which are you know more complex more scaling type problems but it's a different type of hard right when you're literally fighting for survival i think that's probably the very most difficult time was essentially getting to a point where you felt like you could actually survive i mean just from that one little you know clip right there you really kind of get that understanding why so many founders they say you know i what is it one in three have kind of mental breakdowns in their process and their journey. 
have emotion it just it makes so much more sense when you hear you know from your your experience that going back to the very or not the very beginning but i'm really curious as a non-engineer how did you discover your first engineers to build your product and how do you how do you even know they were doing what you asked them to do so i would say first of all i would not really recommend this approach. And this was my... The super scientific approach I took was literally going on to Craigslist and starting to call engineers or essentially software type services on Craigslist. That That is exactly how I found our first two engineers. And uh, they were working for a very small development shop, custom dev shop in the middle of Wisconsin small town middle of Wisconsin, primarily not even really doing real engineering stuff, but primarily building a lot of websites and things like that. But these two guys are still with us today and turned out to be both fantastic engineers. I I don't think they were in the beginning, however. (laughs) I think we were all of us were kind of learning together and I didn't know any better, right? What I did know, particularly the mistakes that we made around scalability and things like that. I just had no idea. What I did know and I obsessed over is finding the bullseye of how do we deliver value to the person that is going to pay us to the customer, right? Personal organization. How do we deliver value? And I just obsessively focused on that. And that led to them figuring out how to build essentially MVP, an MVP of the product and then gave us at least a foundation to iterate on. So that was... And so I really had no idea if what they were doing or right was right or not until I would take it to the customer or potential customer and get feedback. Okay. Now going to that customer, how were those first few meetings? Also, how did you land your first big account? So the first big account, and there was sort of the first meaningful account and then I would say the first big account, and both of them were very similar. It was just literally being out in the trenches, knocking essentially the equivalent of just knocking on a bunch of doors, having a bunch of conversations, right? So I started digging in the space that we were serving in the lending community. I started digging in and just immersing myself in the different trade publications and the conferences and understanding kind of who the influencers were, who are the people that had essentially a tremendous amount of respect in that industry. And so how I found our first big customer was essentially through a referral of a compliance attorney who's still a very good friend today. Our initial product solved a really specific problem around compliance and marketing. Is it related to lending? And so the compliance attorney that I found through just paying attention to the industry and calling him repeatedly and just saying, hey, I'm really passionate and sharing my passion with him. I'm really passionate about solving some of these problems for the industry. I'm willing to do whatever it takes, literally having that conversation with him. He's like, okay, love your passion, love your energy. Come back to me and tell me when you can do X, Y, and Z, which were essentially some of the product requirements. And so I would I would do that. I would call him back. And I knew this particular attorney had tremendous respect from a lot of the what I consider to be our ideal customers, which were lenders he would work for them, do compliance work for them. So he had a tremendous respect and confidence of those organizations. And I believe that if I could win the endorsement of him, I could leverage essentially the trust and the relationships that he had to win some some customers. 
So that's what I did. And that's exactly how we won our first customers. I was able to get an introduction out. It took some time. It took probably from introduction to deal, it took six, seven months of being really, really relentless, but was able to get a first customer, meaningful customer that paid us, I think, 17, 18,000 a month for our quote unquote enterprise solution, which essentially wasn't, wasn't built yet. Um, and that was how we, the short version of the story. So how important is it when you're having those early conversations to really define what customer success would be, really define the, if we can get this for you, you'll sign on as a, as a, as a customer instead of just an endless change of scope kind of, yeah, we still need yeah. this. We still need that. We still need kind of conversation. So I would, I would tell you that Today, if I was going through this process, I would have the knowledge and would be much more thoughtful about controlling that scope and pinning them down as to what success looked like. Okay. I heard a, a quote once in, and I can't remember exactly where I read it, but it was essentially if you want to be successful and build a, a tech company from nothing, from zero, you're going to do things that won't scale. Okay. And or that maybe don't make sense sometimes. And for us, that was essentially promising a bunch of these crazy commitments that we had no business saying we could do, but just by sheer force of will and not knowing any better. Basically, whatever they said they needed, I just said yes to. And I figured we would figure it out later. I mean, this is really what happened. And so how did your engineers I'm not, I'm not I'm not advising that approach by the way. I'm just picturing all your engineers. Oh great, Joe came back from another meeting. <laughs> well, I had like 3 of them at the time, so it wasn't all of them, but it was a couple of them. And you know, we just had a we had a mindset that uh nothing is impossible and if you just dig in and kind of Go face first into the fire. You'll you'll make progress and you'll figure it out. And it was just that kind of blind conviction of saying, "Hey, if we just refuse to give up and we stay super focused on that customer and delivering for them, then we're gonna we're gonna figure it out." Now it was extremely painful to deliver that first solution. I'm proud to say those guys are still customer today and. They probably had lots of reasons to fire us along the way. But I think what they, the reason they stuck with us is we cared so much and we communicated so intensely around what we were doing to get them to the finish line of this initial solution. And we had a very primitive product. And what they needed was a much more complex solution that in, uh, encompassed essentially CRM plus marketing automation for, for lending, specifically for lending. They needed a much more complex solution than what we had, but they just stayed with us because we cared a tremendous amount and um, just didn't give up. From your story so far with the reaching out kind of cold calls to CEOs and that to get advice to this now getting this client without even really a product and your background, it sounds like you know your sales skills are at the elite level. What should a CEO that may not have sales skills that, that's going out, what should they focus on when they're when they're talking to those potential first customers? How how what should they be thinking? What how should they go about planning? First of all, I definitely would not say that my sales skills were were at an elite level, right? Selling houses is incredibly different from selling enterprise software. 
completely different dynamic. You're selling to a business, an entity versus a consumer. But what I did have was a certain amount of comfort level having conversations that had I not had sales background would have maybe been super uncomfortable. So I think first of all, on the technical founder side or people that don't have a sales background, you have to realize that you are now in sales. If you start a company, doesn't matter if you're an engineer or a sales CEO, you are now in sales. Your responsibility is to sell your product, even if you hate sales. You want to build and sell a product, you have to figure out how to be the first salesperson. I, I fundamentally believe that every CEO should be the, the first salesperson. And I think the key is, is understanding that you're in the business of delivering value and outcomes for your customer. You're not in the business of delivering something that is your version of this cool new gadget, this cool new technology. If it doesn't deliver value, they don't see the value, they don't believe in the value. If it doesn't make their life better and it's impactful and they believe that, you don't have anything. right? It doesn't matter how maybe right you are from a, hey, this is a better way. Technically, this is a superior solution. If the customer doesn't see that or can't get the benefit from it, you're not going to win. That makes sense. So selling is really about... I've always believed it's really about communicating. It's about having a tremendous amount of empathy for who you're dealing with as a customer or potential customer, and then really being a strong communicator, listening to what they're saying, understanding what they're saying, and then being able to have that continued conversation. You had mentioned you know, when you start a company, even if you don't, if you're the engineer, you're now in sales. As the company grows, how does the CEO's role change from that salesperson to well, how's your role changed over the lifespan of the company so far? You know, let me preface by saying I'm speaking from a perspective of enterprise B2B software, right? I think there are there are certainly amazing companies that are built in the consumer space where they have a product-led growth strategy where they build a product and they don't ever talk to a person or they don't ever talk to a customer, but they build some incredible app that goes viral. Like those, certainly those things are a different animal. But for purposes of a B2B enterprise SaaS company, yeah, you you have to be in sales. And I'm sorry, let me back up. What was the exact question? I just want to make sure I, I answer exactly what the question was. It started mm-hmm. going down a path. How has your role changed oh, got it. in the evolution of the company? So my role has definitely evolved as, as the company has evolved. And, and I would say, if I look back and I'm super honest with myself, I could have done a much better job earlier on of evolving in my role. My weakness was I believe that by sheer force of will, I could move the business forward, right? which works in the early days. It does not work as you start scaling. What works as you start scaling is you have to be able to inspire the team. You have to be able to attract, hire, and inspire the team around you to get the same types of outcomes. Right? You cannot do everything yourself. And so I would say that my, the biggest evolution of that is I can't actually make everything happen. You have to rely on other people and you have to work through other people 
And then you have to be comfortable dealing with the dynamics of managing cross-functional teams and then figuring out how to get different personalities to work together. And so it's the complexity evolves pretty rapidly as you start scaling the business. I mean, we went from, you know, 1 million to 10 million in ARR in under two years, probably like 19 months or something. And, you know, from that point, it was like massive difference in responsibilities. It was really largely about how I was spending my time and the impact that I could have. With that, with that massive growth, how did how did you see the company culture changed or did it not change in that whole time? It absolutely changed. I would say, and we've had periods of time over the last five, six years. We did our, our Series A in mid-2016. And we've had different periods where the culture changed fairly dramatically, and we've had to kind of reset that culture, right? And this is maybe a piece of advice that I would give to anybody is be fiercely protective of your culture that you believe in that's at your core. Decide what your what your core values are and don't deviate from them. Don't make exceptions. Don't hire people to just fill chairs and make sure that you're pretty ruthless about protecting those core values around how you're hiring and firing people in your early days and scaling the business. Otherwise, you're going to go through periods of time where you do have to kind of reset the culture. Because if you bring in people that don't believe and see the world the same way that you do and don't have the same values around how you want to serve the customer or you know why you're building the product, whatever it might be, if you don't hire people that see things the way that you do, you're going to have a hard time maintaining the culture. So we've had different times, say, over the last five, six years... And you know, coming out of COVID, we we just went through. I would say over this last seven eight months, we've really been able to now reset our culture again. Probably the third time we've essentially gone in and sort of reset the culture to where we want it to be. I think it never stops. I think at every level, from the people that I talk to, it's just becomes a bigger part of your job as CEO to drive that culture and making sure you're putting the leadership in place that's going to continue to drive the culture. As your company grows, I mean, B2B, SaaS enterprise, how have you gone about maybe getting the feedback from customers, getting the, I guess I want to say, how should a company use the, the customer data they're getting when thinking about that roadmap forward? Well, I think there's two components to what we call the customer feedback loop. And the customer feedback loop, in my opinion, is really the key to everything, okay? Because it tells you if you're going the right direction or the wrong direction. And the faster you can adjust that feedback loop and get it on the right path or the right direction, the faster you're going to accelerate. And so I think there's both the quantitative data that you can get from your product and how they're using the product and what outcomes they're getting from the product. As an example, are they getting the business outcomes? Sometimes they don't realize they're getting business outcomes, but if you have the data, for us, it's very much around, we're helping people grow their business. We're helping them improve their retention rate of their existing customers. And so those types of metrics, when you can surface them and show that data, that will prove to them they're getting tremendous value, even if they don't necessarily have that point of view. You also can you, you learn that what they tell you is not necessarily always exactly what they need. Okay. Um, as an example, they you know they may say, "Hey, I need your product to solve X, Y, Z, and it needs to do it in this way, and I need it 
be laid out this way, but you have to drill down sometimes and say, what is the ultimate outcome that this customer is looking for? And it's really about getting them to their outcome, not necessarily the path they take to the outcome. Does that make sense? So like, you know, they they might believe that they have to do things in a certain way, but if you can get them the outcome better, then then certainly that's going to that's going to unlock value for them. So, I think you have to look at data and you also have to have tremendous amounts of conversations with customers, specifically early customers, so that you can get that right product market fit and ultimately accelerate. Now you'd mentioned going out to angels getting rejected. You'd also mention your A round. You've mentioned a lot of experience raising capital. Do you have any insights, stories, or anything like that you can share? Because I mean, our audience, a lot of it is first-time entrepreneurs here in Silicon Valley or in these startup ecosystems around yeah. the world that you know that's on the back of their mind. So, I mean, I have we could fill up a whole afternoon of of uh, stories <laughs> on going uh, and dealing with investors all the way from you know we're a Midwest company, right? And so going out to Sand Hill Road and going into some of these sort of incredibly admired venture capital, I mean, essentially institutions, right, that have built tremendous companies for many, many years. That was a pretty intimidating process. That was a little bit later uh, in the later rounds and certainly got lots of stories of, you know, both rejection and and sort of what not to do, to do there. But you know, early on our Series A, the guys that funded our one of the investors that led our Series A round essentially threw me out of his office a year before, about twelve months before, and he was right though. And we had to make a pretty big change in sort of the way we were serving the market, the business model. And so, rather than getting, I, I think I was pretty pissed off. The you know when I got out of the meeting, I was like, man, you know, I'm not ever going to take money from this guy or whatever, but. Actually, the feedback was really valuable. And as I thought about it, um, it made sense. And we did make, not just because he said that, but because we have had enough other data, uh, we needed to adjust the business model and how we were going to market. And so we did and took that rejection as part of the overall feedback we were getting, made an adjustment to the business model. And then that same investor ended up leading our Series A 12 months after essentially th- throwing me out of his office. So that was an interesting turn of events. What was it that that investor suddenly liked? Was it that you listened to him, that you're coachable, that you hit the milestones? He said, if you do this, come back and talk to me. I mean, going from getting, you know, kicking you out to leading around, that's a huge, huge change. That's a 180. Yeah. Yeah. So it was really simple. They wanted, he wanted to see validation and progress, right? Validation in the form of customers. Not just one customer, but multiple customers that are willing to pay that prove out you have product market fit. That's essentially looking back. I don't think he described it that way. And because looking back, that's essentially what, what they were looking for. And actually, right before he agreed to do it, it was essentially, hey, you know, we like the changes that you've made. You've got good progress, but we'd really like to see one more customer sign on to do the deal before we'll come in and do the Series A. So we got on a i got on a plane went to visit a company that we had been meeting with a couple of different times to try to win their business this was like we literally had just a couple customers and i don't think we had really any of them live yet but they were paying and so he wanted to see one more deal so i went on a plane got on a plane went out to meet with a customer and they said well you're missing all of these capabilities okay but 
if you'll build those things, we'll actually sign the deal with you. And it was like a pretty sizable deal. It was almost 20,000, somewhere 20,000 ish a month. And so I naively said, sure, we'll commit to all of those things and we'll have it to you within six months. And I said, actually, but I need a favor. I mean, this is absolutely exactly what happened. I'm just going to be honest with you. I'm trying to raise funding right now. And uh, look, in order for me to get this funding so that we can build what you need us to build, I need you to sign this deal in the next two days. And he said, wow. You know, I've never actually bypassed procurement and just signed a deal. He goes, but you know, I love your passion and I can tell that you're just not going to give up and I'd like to partner with you guys. And so we ended up signing a deal. I sent it to the Series A investor who said, Hey, I want to see one more deal. And I took a picture of it, sent it to him, said, Hey, we just got this with the signature, the signature page of the contract, sent it to him. And he goes, that's pretty impressive. And he goes, we're in. And that was how I got our Series A done. So, Have you always had that much, this much grit and tenacity in your, in, your, in your life? I mean, what, what were you like on the sports field growing up? Uh, <laughs> I was, you know, I was not a, I was an okay athlete, never a great athlete, but I, I did, you know, I would like to say, I feel like I do have a pretty insane level, insane level of grit. And I think it's just the way I grew up really, right? I grew up without much of anything. My my dad was an incredibly hard worker, came from a blue collar background and, you know, just kind of always had that mindset. And Joe, I'm, I mean, we've kind of teased the audience for a while. Can you tell us a little bit about, you know, your company, what you've been building over these years? I really yeah. go all at it. Tell us. Yeah. So, so Total Expert is a purpose-built CRM customer engagement platform that serves regulated financial industry, financial services industry. We serve banks, mortgage lenders, credit unions, soon to be insurance companies that sell regulated products and services to, to consumers. And so we have become the number one platform in the lending space or CRM and customer engagement and uh, had essentially achieved that over Three, four years, I think it took to do that. And we're approaching 50 million, right about 50 million in, in ARR now. And yeah, so that's the high level version. Okay. Now you also got to tell us what's on the horizon for the next, you know, one to three years. What are some milestones you're planning on hitting? Yeah. So clearly the next big milestone for us is getting to 100 million in ARR. And we're going, I would say, head down, committed to hitting that over this next two years. And the way that we're building the, the platform today is essentially just continuing to meet with customers and thinking very big about the problems that, that we can help solve. And the evolution for our company is, has really been the initial product that we had, initial platform was essentially a system of engagement, system of communication to where people could market and engage with customers. They could track what's happening in the customer journey. To now, we're we're transitioning to not just a system of communication and engagement, but also a system of intelligence. So it's really about taking uh, data, both zero-party, first-party data, but also third-party data that can give you a much more intelligent, comprehensive view of every customer, of every individual consumer, and what their financial journey looks like. And then we take those data, those insights 
from that completed, much more comprehensive profile that we can establish in our platform. And then we allow our customers to then action on that data in the form of we'll notify a salesperson when they have a customer that is showing intent or is showing a need as an example maybe they maybe they need to send their kids to college and they have a bunch of equity in their home we surface that signal not only to the salesperson but also to the organization and then we put the workflow we automate the workflow around it and so we're essentially taking that those capabilities in our platform and just expanding expanding the use cases around them. How much of these features were in your initial kind of pitches to angels or your A round? Because mm-hmm. I mean, even over the years, a lot of this technology, I'm guessing people weren't even thinking that some of this was possible back then. Yeah. Yeah. The initial pitch, we were essentially funded off of our initial MVP product, which was a co-marketing slash compliance solution. We had very basic marketing and engagement capabilities, and we had a compliance layer because we were vertical specific, right? We're a vertical SaaS company. It's really about going the last mile and it's about going super deep in the use case. And so we had you know, the depth of the use case, but it was very narrow in terms of the solution that we had. So the vast majority of things that our platform does today were basically nowhere in our initial pitches. You know, we're certainly not a part of our Series A pitch. That started showing up, I think, over that next two years between our Series A and our Series B. We started to uncover, okay, building a true vertical platform that solves the entire customer journey. That started to sh- manifest itself in the form of we just started working with customers more deeply. And really, what they were looking for is a platform that could orchestrate an entire customer journey and all of the different touch points around that. And so that started to show up and then that fed what we started building from a feature standpoint. With that many touch points, with that much you know, evolution of the, the customer's time on your platform, how would you calculate something like, like lifetime value of a, of a customer with, with this? Or is that even possible? What is our lifetime value of a customer or what's the lifetime value for customer of... Of the customer, of the end consumer, or for our uh, of our customer, mm. lifetime value of the enterprise using your software for when Got they it. have a, a customer. I mean, okay, so I just want to make sure I'm clear. I'm sorry to keep asking this the same no, way. But no, when no. I think about I think about lifetime value. There is the lifetime value of us signing an enterprise. Okay? Yeah. So with lifetime value of that customer, but there's also the lifetime value of the, the client customer. working for that enterprise. That's, that's what I'm thinking. Cause if you have so much data on that end consumer's yes. life, how would that yeah. person go guide? Cause they're thinking there's endless number of touch points here that yes. we, could, we could. That's yeah. that, that's, that's exactly right. And that's very, very good perspective. So most of our value proposition to an enterprise that wants to work with us today is our ability to unlock and increase the lifetime value of one of their existing customer relationships. Most financial services organizations only capture a very small fraction of what's possible with the lifetime value, right? And you say, well, why is that? Right? They have take a bank, for example. They sell lots of different products and services. Why, why wouldn't they sell all those products and services to every customer? Well, the, the answer is most financial services firms have been very transactional and siloed by nature. They're not putting the data together. And 
if they are putting it together, they're most certainly not able to action on it at the ground level. Right. So it's very much about unlocking that lifetime value and maximizing that lifetime value. And, and you know, we believe that look, our mission essentially is giving the perfect customer journey across every financial milestone. And if you do that for these organizations, you deliver an amazing customer journey across the important financial milestones that naturally feeds into the different products and services that that consumer needs based on what's going on in their life. All right. I just got one last question. How many times do you think you've pivoted during this whole journey? <laughs> well, complete 180 pivot initially early on the first couple of years. And then there's been dozens of adjustments along the way that I would not necessarily consider a complete pivot, but there's certainly a course correction, right? So I think it's really about for us, success has always been about saying, you know, we believe in a large vision. Let's be super stubborn about that big vision. But the path that we take to get there, we're going to be nimble. We're going to course correct. We're going to get feedback, make an adjustment and go back at it. And that's, that's just been continuous and never ending. And Joe, if anyone wants to find out more information about you and your company, what's the best way to go about doing it? Yeah. Uh, TotalExpert.com. Uh, I'm on LinkedIn. Uh, certainly feel free to reach out to me anytime. Joe at TotalExpert.com. All right. And for our audience out there, when I'm not hosting this podcast, I'm a mid-market investment banker focused on mergers, acquisition, growth capital, and secondaries. Please connect with me on my LinkedIn, Sean Flynn, S-H-A-W-N-F-L-Y-N-N, investment banker, or for the podcast, thesiliconvalleypodcast.com, where you can connect with our past guests. Information to connect is in the show notes. And with that, Joe, I really got to thank you for your time this week on the Silicon Valley Podcast. I learned an absolute ton. This is an episode I'm going to be listening to multiple times while working out, listening, listening in the car and sharing it with friends. Thank you, Sean. Really appreciate the conversation. Thank you for listening to the Silicon Valley Podcast. To access our resources, visit us at thesiliconvalleypodcast.com and follow our host on Twitter, Facebook, and LinkedIn at Sean Flynn SV. This show is for entertainment purposes only. Before making any decisions, consult a professional.